the last, last of the screws. All right, Leslie would be proud. Yes, Leslie. Thank you for setting us on this course. When I spoke to Leslie Vossel, I had no idea that she'd be launching me on a mission that would involve power tools. And sneaking around in the math department after hours through Cornell University uh, with my producer, with Ellen. And now we just have to get the um, evidence out of the building. <laughs> okay. Well, that's we it. So that now we've done easy. it, and um, I don't see any sign of police. I think we're good. We'll come back to this mischief. It'll all make a lot more sense once you've heard what Leslie Vossel has to say. And come to think of it, it's actually sort of fitting that my conversation with her led to um, a nighttime recording because at an academic institution because that's where my conversation with her started. So you did radio as uh, in, in what role? I was in the first co-educational class at Columbia University, Columbia College, and I was a new music DJ, and I did Transfigured Night, the 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. slot on Friday morning. Wow. And so I, I performed very poorly in uh, whatever the class that was on Friday morning <laughs> at 9. From Quanta Magazine, this is The Joy of X. I'm Steve Strogatz. In this episode, Leslie Vossel. Yeah, that's why I'm deaf. I just spent, I mean, this was in the early 80s in New York City where it was just a lot of music, a lot of drugs, a lot of biochemistry. This is great. Wow, this is a true confession. Did, do you actually, you're not quite teasing? You, you've been to so many rock events and stuff that you think you might have some hearing impairment? Yeah, which I think is pretty, it's pretty good street cred, right? <laughs> <laughs> it definitely is. Uh, wow. But, uh, interesting, too, for a person who likes to study sensory systems. Leslie is a, is a terrific neurobiologist who is especially interested in odor, smell. How does smell work at the molecular level, at the genetic level? Um, you know, what is it to smell something? What, and how, especially she's interested in studying the sense of smell in a particular organism um, that most of us despise, mosquitoes. I find it's often nice to uh, talk to scientists about their early days. Did you play with chemistry sets or something? Were you, did you like animals? What was your story as a kid? Uh, nepotism. My uncle is a professor at Syracuse University, and he ran a summer lab at the Marine Biological Laboratory on Cape Cod. And uh, different different nieces and nephews would get in line to work in the summer lab. And so when I was 16, it was my turn, and I went up and started <laughs> doing science. And it was great. You know, summer in Woods Hole, there's the beach, there's sailing, there's parties with graduate students and a lot of really exciting science. So uh -huh. that was it. From the time I was 16, I had no hesitation whatsoever that I would become a biologist. This is incredible. But I mean, it suggests that you must have had some interest in science that you were willing to do this in the first place. Well, you know, I think all children have a latent interest in science. It's hard to find a child that's not curious, a child mm -hmm. that doesn't love animals. And so I was firmly in that camp. Yes, I had a chemistry set. Yes, I ordered a perfume kit and concocted <laughs> really horrible 
perfumes. We lived in New Jersey, and so I'd go down to the woods and open up the perfume chemistry kit and mix stuff down in the woods. <laughs> this is amazing. I Now, maybe it was some kind of gender thing, but I don't remember ever hearing about a perfume kit. So maybe you should walk me through that. You would get chemistry kits where you could blow stuff up, but there was right. also a niche. Perfumery is chemistry. So it was a niche uh, toy, I guess. You get this big box with a, a oils that would be a base and then a bunch of different different uh, notes, different vials with liquids in them, different color liquids. And, you know, in retrospect, pretty sophisticated with yeah. instructions for how to make a floral scent or a masculine scent. I, of course, just threw those instructions away and mixed my own stuff. <laughs> and uh, it was Good. fun. That's so interesting um, because it's true. You know, like today, I, I wonder if they even sell that because you could imagine people worrying about the insurance problems or kids drinking things they shouldn't drink. Or, I know. So they yeah, don't, maybe. I don't know if they do. I think I, I feel sorry for children today because their lives have been so de-risked that there's no there's no fun left. We were much more feral. I think we just ran around and blew stuff up. <laughs> I, I don't know. It was the good good old days when kids could be feral and experiment. Woods Hole, the place where Leslie spent all those summers, is a big deal in the science world. There's a bunch of institutes there, lots of researchers. It's like a mythical place in the world of science, especially for biology. I actually spent a summer there myself doing an internship at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. And I was there in the summer of my first year after college. So I was about, let's see, I think I was about like 21 or 22 years old. Woods Hole is amazing. You go, I, I went from a small town in New Jersey where there's no scientists. I, I didn't know a scientist aside from my uncle. And then you go up to Woods Hole and then there's uh, just hundreds, hundreds of scientists. Every store is full of scientists. It's like a magical village. I think any kid who has a chance to spend time there will become a scientist. Well, I, I like your description with the hundreds of scientists walking around, because that was something when my big brother, who was a lawyer, came to visit with his family. As we're walking around the streets and going into, there's a little restaurant, I think, called the Fishmonger or something like that. And my brother, who was very corporate, said, well, everybody looks really weird in this place. And it was a funny collision because, of course, that's the major departure point for ferries that go out to Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket. Mm -hmm. And so every time a ferry came in, there would it would disgorge all of these tourists who would walk down the main street and then collide with all the scientists. It was really, it's like a great, a great sociology experiment. <laughs> exactly. Wow. But so your uncle didn't just have you washing... Test tubes? It started out, they, they needed a lab helper to wash test tubes, pick up packages, and uh, kind of wipe down the benches. And so I did that really efficiently, and then I became interested in the experiments. And then they realized that I could be put to work uh, picking up packages, but also doing experiments. Hmm. And in retrospect, the experiments were really wacky, uh, but we published them. So it was my first soup to nuts experience. Why, why do you describe the experiments back then as wacky? Well, the first summer we were looking at sea urchin fertilization. Sea urchin is a classic model organism for cell biology. So I would spend my mornings um, getting male sea urchins to ejaculate by electrocuting oh, them. Oh, there you go. 
and then collect all this. <laughs> Wait, sorry, what did you say? How did you get them to ejaculate? I would have this really low tech. It was just like this big battery and then two metal leads, and I would just jam the metal leads into the side of the oh, male no. <laughs> sea urchin and then turn the thing on, and then the poor thing would ejaculate. <laughs> it was fine. Then you'd throw it back in the other tank and then collect the sperm. And then it was kind of worse for the females. I would just take a big syringe of potassium chloride and and then just jam the syringe into the female sea urchin. And then I th- that pretty much killed her. But as a consequence of that, she would release all of her oh. eggs. That was really mean. But there's a lot of sea urchins in the sea. Yeah, I suppose. And... <laughs> And then I would mix the egg and sperm together, and the experiment was uh, normally the whole principle of biology is it's one sperm, one egg. That's really important. And so we were discovering that if you put in various concoctions of proteins, you can get something called polyspermy, where you get hundreds of sperm attaching to an egg. So that was really cool. I could order all these different proteins, make concoctions, get the sperm and eggs, mix them, add the proteins, and then see these eggs that had hundreds of sperm attached Hmm. to them. So cool. But so uh, does the egg only get fertilized by one of them? You know, the experiment kind of, that's why in retrospect, it was kind of wacky. I don't exactly understand what we were doing. I think I would go through the whole ejaculation, egg, mix in the concoction, and then just count the number of sperm attached. We That was kind of the end uh-huh. of it. So on the one hand, it was a great introduction to science. On the other hand, uh, I have become more sophisticated <laughs> since then in asking questions. Maybe we should start talking about the deadliest animal on Earth. Now, you want to tell us, Leslie, what, what we should be thinking of? I mean, a lot of people guess sharks or rabid dogs. Um, but the actual answer is mosquitoes. Uh-huh. So mosquitoes kill far more people than any other animal on Earth. And the, what's the second most deadly animal on hey, Earth? Hey, you got me. Um, but maybe human beings. Correct. Ah. So, hu- so humans, humans kill about half as many other humans oh. as mosquitoes do. But mosquitoes are way out in front. Now, what about bacteria? We don't want to call them animals, I suppose. Or do we? I mean, mosquitoes kill way more people than any than any prokaryote. Okay, so bacterial diseases, no, no contest. contest. Yeah, no contest. But it's actually the viruses that are causing the problem, right? They're transporting viruses. This is correct. This is correct. Or um, plasmodium. So these little critters that cause malaria. So yeah, the the mosquitoes are blameless. They're not trying to kill us, but as part of their normal life cycle, they need human blood. And so they're really, really good at transferring pathogens between humans. And so again, mosquitoes by themselves are just annoying, but if they're infected, then they're incredibly effective at infecting humans. What got you started on mosquitoes? Did Were you thinking about infectious disease from the beginning or... Or some more fundamental biological question, or, or what? Yeah, the, the starting point was when I was a postdoctoral fellow with Richard Axel at Columbia. Richard is known for his many foundational pieces of science, but probably most recently his discovery of how smell works, a discovery for which he won the Nobel Prize, and with Linda Buck. So Buck and Axel identified the odorant receptors in mammals. And so my project in his laboratory was to find the odorant receptors in insects. 
I started that work in 1993, and in the back of our minds, Richard and I always thought that if we found insect odorant receptors, that would be the entry point to studying mosquitoes, Mm. because mosquitoes find us because we smell good. So (laughs) the sense of smell of insects is really front and center in how they kill us. I'm I'm picking up a theme here going from you, the teenager with the perfume kit, to you, the more mature scientist thinking about odor. Yeah, absolutely true. I'm I'm nuts for perfume. I love, (laughs) there are no bad smells. I'm I'm still one day going to write a book called There Are No Bad Smells. Really? So, <laughs> that will be I mean, a every hit. smell is great. Every smell is great. Every smell is great. Uh, you've used the word receptor. Can you tell us what, what you mean by that? The reason that we're able to see things in the world, that we can see color and motion and contrast, is because we have cells in our retina that take in light and color, and the proteins that do that are called receptors. And so in the nose, we also have receptors. These are proteins that detect not light, but they detect chemicals, molecules. And because there are many, many more types of uh, molecules that have odors, the bet that Buck and Axel made is that there would be many, many, many more uh, receptors for smells than there would be for light. And they were correct. A typical mammal has between 400 and 2,000 genes that encode for odorant receptors. So it's the largest gene family in in most animals and insects have a lot of odorant receptors also this is these are the little machines that are sniffing around for odors that you inhale or that contact in the case of insect the antenna and then they interact they bind with these smells and the smells then activate the receptor and then that tells the mosquito brain it is a human it is really good fly toward it and bite it. I just, it's sort of mind-blowing to me as a visual mainly animal, which I'm imagining a lot of people would call themselves either visual or, you know, like auditory people. They use either sight or hearing as their main sense. But this this sense of the world that would come through having 2,000 or anyway, hundreds of, like instead of just the, the seven or eight colors that we talk about in the colors of the rainbow, if I had 200 or 1,000 quote, colors that are smells. I mean, it's weird for us, right? Because our smell, sense of smell is sort of like, I don't know what, deactivated or was never that good to begin with. So, yeah, so there's there's this folklore that humans have lost their sense of smell that were visual, and that is just wrong. It's just completely wrong. Oh, good. Thank you for so, correcting me. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, most, you know, m- most of the world believes that a lot of it. It's been, it's yeah. been debunked recently. The old really? idea was that the part of the brain that humans use to smell is this vestigial nubbin that was just based on some nonsense science and investigators at Rutgers had a look recently and that's just wrong. Humans have a perfectly respectable part of the brain that that receives smells and we certainly have, I mean you have between 350 and 400 receptors that you can do a lot with. It's mostly just that people today, I'm sitting in an odorless room right now most uh-huh. most of us live in an odorless world, um, so we just don't have huh. a lot of experience with smells. But we we do a lot of human smell testing in my laboratory at Rockefeller, and so we have a front seat to how far you can push humans to uh, tell us that they detect really tiny quantities of smell, and that they're incredibly good at telling very very similar smells apart. So I think it's just... Is that right? I just think it's... That's we're, interesting. You know, we're, 
we are not giving our nose the respect that it deserves. I get it. I like it. That's. I think that's big news. It, Maybe not to you. Well, I mean, I'm constantly, I'm a proponent for, come on, be, respect your nose. Tell your nose <laughs> that your nose is, be grateful for your nose. <laughs> is there anything like nose exercises? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned um, you mentioned people who are experts in wine, and I, I mentioned experts in perfumery. A lot of it is just paying attention. So, learning to learning to inhale, learning to enjoy the smells, uh, learning to remember them. So, a lot of it is training your nose cognitively. Um, I think a lot of people just don't pay mm-hmm. attention to it. Like you'll pay attention to really strong smells that you associate with badness. But I think a lot of people, and again, we mostly live in deodorized environments. Yeah. People are, if you wear a lot of perfume or aftershave to work, people people shame That's you true. or avoid you. That That is true. That, that, it's- most, mo- yeah, m- most of our food is odorless. All, 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 you know, all fruits and vegetables and flowers have been bred to be really? odorless. Really? Even the fruits and vegetables? Depressing. Huh. Depressing because they like they certainly tell you at the supermarket if you want to figure out if the peach is ready, you know you, you, there's a certain thing with how to squeeze it and shouldn't give too much, but that it should smell delicious. It even tells me this at, at the, my local supermarket on the brown bag, on the paper bag. Yeah, but I mean, good luck. I mean, unless unless you go to a place where they're growing real peaches or real bananas, it, you'll just you'll. I mean, it will feel like a peach and it will have some vague peach sense but it's they're basically you know they're basically tennis balls like they just there's not a lot in there's not a lot in modern modern it's, food it's all been bred really? out so is this right? a gmo we, thing that that we should be no it's no it's that. just i mean traditional 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 plant breeding yeah. i mean you, you you have your you have your choice about what kind of if you're a geneticist you have your choice about what kind of stuff you want and so peaches that ship well and don't bruise and are beautiful also are tasteless and odorless. So I think it's just a trade-off. Hmm. And roses, you know, go, go into a florist shop and if you find a rose that smells like a rose, let me know. After the break, a new kind of diet pill, the thrilling sensory universe of mosquitoes, and an ancient question. Do mosquitoes actually love you more than your friend? If you like the Joy of X podcast and getting to know brilliant scientists and mathematicians, you might also like Quanta Magazine's science podcast. In every episode, Quanta's award-winning reporters illuminate the stories behind new discoveries in mathematics, physics, computer science, and the life sciences. Check it out on Apple Podcasts or on your preferred podcasting app or at quantamagazine.org. The Quanta Magazine Science Podcast. Illuminating science for your ears. Back to the mosquito. Then there you were. You said Axel and Buck had ident- or you know got people into thinking about the science of smell at this molecular level or genetic level too. And you were one of them. Yeah, it was an absolute. Yep, and it was an absolute re- revolution in the field. It was really thrilling to be there at the at the earliest stages where, by just cloning the genes that were responsible for smell, just by having those genes in hand, we immediately had an idea for how smell works. There are hundreds of receptors and that collectively they're able to Mm. scan the whole 
world of chemical space. And the challenge after that was to figure out how the brain Mm -hmm. imposes meaning on the things that the receptors are smelling. And so I spent probably the first 20 years, 25 years of my career working on this problem in Drosophila (laughs) melanogaster, the little kitchen flies that love peaches, back to peaches. So they love... They love yeast that grows on fruit. and But always in the back of my mind was this, the early, um, the early passion that Axel and I had that, that we could do something useful with insect smell. And so a few years after I started my lab, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation put out a call for high-risk, high-reward projects. And Axel and I applied for that uh, to try to figure out a way to translate everything we knew about smell in Drosophila to smell in in the mosquito. And that really pushed the lab toward the public health crisis Mm -hmm. that mosquitoes represent. So we've been working in the lab on little cute Drosophila doing very interesting and important basic biomedical research. Mm -hmm. But when the Gates Foundation would fly us around the world to Cape Town to Bangkok to Arusha and Kenya, where you actually are in the mix there where stuff is happening. Then the interesting basic biomedical work on Drosophila just seemed completely irrelevant to me. And I started making the move to let's become a mosquito lab and let's do it quickly. I mean, you mentioned Drosophila, right. So that's this, you, you called it the kitchen fly, the fruit fly. Um, it had been studied since the early 1900s or maybe even earlier, 18, I don't know. But it, we know a ton about its genetics, its behavior, its neuroscience, whereas the mosquito, I take it, is relative, until recently maybe, was sort of less studied, less was known. That's right, yes. Yeah, so um, Drosophila is the, is the workhorse of modern biology and genetics. I'd say almost everything we know about biology we know from Drosophila. It's really made a, as an organism a huge contribution so at the point that we started, we were, in some cases, a century behind Drosophila, in some cases, decades behind. And it was an incredibly difficult and risky gambit to pivot the lab from working on Drosophila, where we had a century of tools and a huge and supportive community and places where you could mail order strains that had different interesting mutations to just going out into the wilderness where there was nothing. We we started, we had no mosquitoes in the lab. We didn't know how to grow them. There, we didn't, there wasn't really a genome that, that would be a substrate for doing genetics. There were no, CRISPR hadn't been invented. So it was, it was a really difficult and risky period when we did the pivot, and which really started in 2008. So Eight years after I started my lab, we, we, we initiated the pivot where I had one person working on mosquito and about 15 working on Drosophila. And then as of 2016, my last Drosophila person left the lab. And, um, and so in, in, that, in that about decade from when we started the pivot until it was complete, we had to do everything ourselves. We had to, we resequenced the genome, we got CRISPR working in the mosquito and it's been the acceleration has been really thrilling even in the last year and there are many groups who also historically worked in Drosophila who have joined us and so every time i go to a scientific conference there are people who take me aside and say okay how hard is it to do the pivot how hard is it to set up infrastructure to grow the mosquitoes and so i'm really seeing it starting from 
almost nothing to a, a, a field, a big thriving field where stuff is happening. When you went to sleep at night after thinking, I'm going to make this pivot, you know, did you have thoughts of this, this could, you know, down the road could help so many tens or hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah, absolutely. Even before we really initiated the pivot, when we were still working on Drosophila, I was already completely convinced that we could make some progress. So I didn't lose sleep over how important it would be. I did absolutely lose sleep about whether we'd be able to pull it off. So in the early days, also as a lab head, when you you convince all these people, it's going to be great. We're going to do it. We're going to change the world. You can't... um, you can't ever show any doubt or any hesitation that it's going to work, even though when I go home and I'd say, this is never going to work. I have all of the careers of these scientists in my hand, and I have no assurance whatsoever that it's going to work. So it was, it was, really, it was really hard from, from 2000. We started in 2008 in earnest, and it wasn't until 2013 that we published our first paper. And so all of the people in that five-year valley of death, where I give them huge credit for getting on the ride and riding with me. But again, I had to always be like, we got this. It's no problem. She's brave. That's what really came across. As I got to know her, I thought of her as uh, a risk taker, but, but someone who is taking risks for important reasons, who's trying to solve really important problems, not just doing science as an exercise of going through the motions, publishing papers. I mean, she's not a careerist who just wants to have a job. She's really trying to solve important problems of infectious disease and fundamental biological problems about how does how do our sensory systems work? How does smell work? In, in some of the courageous things that she's done to go after these important problems, she has changed her direction completely. You as a responsible mentor and, and lab head, you know, as you say, there's people's careers at stake, and, and they were very uh, sacrificial, maybe too strong a word, but those, those early students were very altruistic in a way in that they helped everybody come up to speed. But, I, you know, the, the, the trick is that you can't, they, they can never know that they're sacrificial <laughs> lambs because I knew it would work. I mean, at heart, like it had to work because I was, I was putting everything on having the pivot work, so... Mm. They were really brave. On the other hand, there are many experiments that are easy to do in science that you don't have to sweat over or lose sleep over, and you will get data, but it will be uninteresting. Yeah. And and people that you train to do that, you're also doing them a disservice yep. because they are doing science that can be done but probably shouldn't be done. And mm. that's that's the thing I try to convey every day is that it's worth taking the risk because what are we doing if you're just doing... Yeah. Redoing stuff that's not interesting. No, I mean, I I love what you just said, because it's not like it's such a glamorous or high paying career. I mean, do science that matters. Right. I mean, why why are you just fooling around? So and and also I've heard it said that it's just as easy or difficult to do important science as to do trivial, pointless science. Like it's not that the important problems are necessarily intrinsically harder. They're all hard. So do something that that's going to make a difference at the end of the day. Yeah. And it, it's it's surprising. This should be a really obvious message, but it it is amazing that it's it seems to be non obvious to many people. But I think that yeah, that that's the message that I try to get across every day is we we really do have our choice of what kind of science we do, and we have to keep it centered on important and fresh and risky things. You, you know, you were able to maybe go for five years without publication. You were already pretty established. 
So I don't know how risky it felt to you. Did it, like, you said you were sure it would work. You really were? There was no little part of you that thought maybe I've... I mean, I should rephrase it. I was not sure it would work. I just, I I was sure that it had to work because if it didn't, if it didn't work, then... That that would be the end of my career. So it was a it was a it was a make or break uh, bet on a career. Wow. So that's why like it had to work because if it didn't, that would be the end of it. What this reminds me of is a TV show that will strike you. Maybe I don't know if you watch the kind of junk TV I watch. I shouldn't call it junk TV. It's called Project Runway. Do you like do you know Project Runway? I've seen it on planes. Yeah. Okay, on planes. So Project Runway is about fashion design. And uh, designers compete, you know. And but there's a mentor that used to be on the show named Tim Gunn, who is a great, great teacher. And he works with all the different designers. And one of his catchphrases was "Make it work." You know, you, they they have a short time to do their their design to make the dress or whatever. And sometimes the materials aren't working out, or their vision doesn't come to fruition. But they only have a certain amount of time, and they have to make it work. And this attitude. That stop complaining, make it work. Is, um... I love it. I love it. I think those are words to live by. <laughs> yeah, and it sounds like you had that. You you had that feeling, and you passed that on to your students. They made it work, and it did work. Yeah. So yeah, now yeah. let's get to that that good part where it did work. Um, I mean, recently, I hear you have some discovery about uh, from from what you learned from your basic science how to feed diet drugs to change the hunger levels of these mosquitoes for human blood as a strategy, an interesting strategy. I mean, really just a crazy idea. Mosquitoes are hungry for people. What if we feed them human diet drugs? Can we turn off that hunger? Can we trick them into feeling like they've already bitten us, that they already have filled up on our blood? We got all these human diet drugs. We fed them to mosquitoes. They lost their appetite. <laughs> we proved. It's so clever. We proved. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> so then we, we proved that the, that the effect was specific because we found, again, a receptor. This is, a, this is like the target of the drug. We then used CRISPR to make mosquitoes that lack that receptor, and all of a sudden they were resistant to the drug, so the diet drug didn't work on them. And then we looked for new molecules that, that wouldn't be human diet drugs, but they would be mosquito diet drugs that would only work on mosquitoes and ticks. And she found some molecules that, that are super specific for critters that spread disease, so <clears throat> ticks and mosquitoes. And now we're in the process of taking it to the next step of coming up with more potent versions of those mosquito diet drugs. And the dream is to uh, one day go out and uh, just feed that stuff to every mosquito. It's an amazing idea. What about resistance, though, like bed nets? We didn't talk yet about bed nets, right? You could put the mosquito nets over people's beds. Uh, just a simple way to try to keep the keep them out, keep them from biting and spreading malaria. Except that you you mentioned that the mosquitoes have found a way around even that. Yeah. So the I mean, bed nets are an amazing technology, and they've they've saved a lot of lives. So there's a clear impact of distributing and using um, insecticide treated bed nets. Um, but they're they're treated with insecticides. Insecticides kill mosquitoes. So. All the mosquitoes that are flying around trying to bite people at night die. That saves lives. All the mosquitoes who are not flying around at night don't die. And so then they slowly uh, take over the population. And so then you have mosquitoes that are flying around during the day when people are not underneath bed nets. And then you have a resurgence of these diseases. So uh, this is just 
straight up Darwinian genetic selection. Mm -hmm. So all all the mosquitoes that happen to have a slightly different work schedule (laughs) where they were hunting during the day, you know, weren't... They, they were a tiny part of the population, and then they, they just end up taking over. So so our diet drugs, you have to do the experiments. I mean, I don't. the people who did the insecticide-treated bed nets, this was an unanticipated and, and unfortunate outcome. You only know after you do the experiment. But we think that the human diet drugs are much less likely to cause resistance uh-huh. because... We are not using death as selection pressure. So okay. death is very, it's the most potent selection pressure there is. Sure Everybody is. who's susceptible dies. Yeah. And anybody who's resistant takes over. So we are not killing the females that take the diet drug. We're just taking away their appetite for a couple of days. Uh-huh. And the appetite returns and they... And those females, if they, if they don't take another dose of our drug, will bite someone. So... Um, I mean, the, the overall effect that we would predict is every female that takes the drug, number one, won't bite anybody for three days. And so then that has an immediate impact on the spread of disease. And that that female who thinks that she's taken a blood meal, who thinks that she's satiated, mm-hmm. will not produce any eggs. And so you have probably a measurable effect on the total population. Hmm. But again, because we're not using death, we're using satiety and not death as selection pressure. We we project that it wouldn't have um, any issues with resistance, but it's biology. I can't. We'd have to do the experiment. Right. I mean, because I'm a little puzzled about that explanation. I, I see the idea, but it does sound like still there's adverse selection. They're not going to have as many... Well, either they what they they won't nourish their offspring as much, or their their eggs won't be as well fed, so to speak. Or, or I mean, it still seems like it's harmful to them if they have been feeling satiated when they really shouldn't be. So, if our drugs were perfect, if if our drugs permanently turned off the appetite, and the female who took the drug never bit anybody, and that therefore never got blood, and therefore never yeah. had children. You would potentially select for females who were resistant um, right. to our drug. Now, the way to be resistant to the drug is to mutate the receptor that the drug acts on. And we know from our CRISPR mutant that mutating the receptor um, affects the fertility of the females. So they're kind of damned if they do, damned if they don't. If they have a functional receptor, they'll lose their appetite. If, if you get resistance to the drug, those animals will be much less fertile. They'll still be hungry for humans, but they'll be uh-huh. much less fertile, and so you have you'll knock down the populations. But these things are really just it's it's like back of the cocktail napkin conjecture until you do it. Is that is that something you you have in the works? We are currently competing for funding to engage the services of medicinal chemists who will take our compound eighteen compound eighteen very sexy name for our diet drug. That's a great name. We're going to make compound eighteen <laughs> plus. So compound eighteen that is. More, the, I mean, the dream is something that will have longer-lasting effects, so that females will take a longer break from hunting people. You must get asked all the time, but I feel like I'd be remiss if I don't ask you: Is this business about um, some people being more attractive to mosquitoes than other people? My that- my friend, when I walk my dog out in the woods, my friend Linda, you know, insists that that she's attractive to mosquitoes, and how come they're not biting me? They're biting her instead. <laughs> 
Um, so please, it's a, it's not. I I assume it's not something you've directly worked on, but maybe your work bears on this this ancient question. It's an ancient question and one of the most fascinating questions. And the case where everyone is a citizen scientist when it comes to mosquitoes because everybody notices it. So, yeah. so we do study it, and it's a real phenomenon. And so there's enormous differences between how attractive different people are to mosquitoes. There's two aspects to it, though. So if you ask people to self-report to say, how attractive are you to mosquitoes, there's actually zero correlation between their answer and the reality. <laughs> and, that's, and that's for two reasons. One that's funny. is that some people just get... Um, get bigger reactions to the bites. So a bite will be much itchier and redder. Yeah. And and so anybody that has that is just bothered a lot by, more by mosquitoes and, and feels like they're persecuted. The person next to them may be actually more attractive to mosquitoes, but the bites um, are less itchy. That's one part of it. Um, and the other part of it is that when humans are, if a mosquito has a choice of a human or nothing, the mosquito will go after the human regardless. But if you're in a grouping, as humans always are, mosquitoes end up being choosy. So if you're if you're the most attractive person at the picnic, you'll get bitten. But if the next week you go to a picnic where there's a more attractive person, you won't get bitten. And so it's all <laughs> contingent on who else is at the picnic. And that's why people self-reporting how attractive they are are usually wrong. Uh-huh. <laughs> so maybe it is the case that when my friend Linda complains to me, you know, maybe she is just the more attractive one. She, she may, she may, yeah, she may, she may be more of a complainer, and the and the bites <laughs> might be itchier. Or Linda may legitimately be more attractive than you are to mosquitoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can take it. <laughs> and the only way to test it is to go into a laboratory and and have us tell you who's more attractive. So mm-hmm. we we have to ask the mosquitoes to tell us who's more attractive. Right, right, right. So. Um, help us think like a mosquito just for a minute. What kinds of cues are they using to, to find someone? What are they paying attention to? Or what can they sense? Yep. So the first thing that, if I didn't make it explicit before, the, the most important thing to remember is that mosquitoes bite us to get blood, and they need the blood to make eggs. And so from that statement, everybody will realize that only females bite. So males can't bite us. They don't want to bite us. They have no interest in us. It's only the females that bite, and if they don't get blood, they are sterile. They will not produce any offspring. So it's the single most important thing that a female mosquito does because it's her fertility, and she needs the protein in the blood to uh, actually mature the eggs. And so for that reason, we think for that reason, because the evolutionary drive to get the blood is so incredibly do-or-die strong, that females, they pay attention to everything. They love the way mm. we look. They love high contrast. They love the way we smell. So they prefer the scent of human over every non-human animal that we've tested, including my dog. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. They love our breath. So they love carbon dioxide. And they also love the heat that we give off. And then finally, when they get close to our skin, they love the humidity that we give off and then also the um, taste of our skin. So, and all of these things they pay attention to, and even a partial, even a partial hint that there's a human will get them attracted. So they, they really are, they are 
missiles. They're sort of guided missiles that pay attention to everything that humans give off. That is fascinating. It's, I mean, you just think you're standing there, you're just sitting on a blanket at a picnic, minding your own business, and it turns out you're, you know, you're outgassing <laughs> your, your carbon dioxide, you're sending out these heat signals, you're smell. Oh, I presume it's bacteria that's smelling that that when you talk about our human smell. Correct, yep. It's, it's not really us, right? It's our bacteria that are along for the ride. Well, it's both. So, the, yeah, the bacteria, yep, the, the bacteria on the skin um, chew on the stuff on our skin. So it's, it's kind of the bacteria on the skin belching and farting out. The, oh, jeez. You're so. really some kind of guest here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's like it's not, it's not the mosquito's fault. We're just we are. You're absolutely right. We're just sitting there giving them all these come hither cues. And I mean, <laughs> people ask me all the time, how can I avoid being bitten? And the answers are kind of silly. Go to a part of the world where there aren't mosquitoes, stay indoors, or when you go outdoors, just cover yourself with DEET and wear a lot of clothes. So it's very difficult to avoid being bitten. Coming up, why I end up outside my office in the math department with power tools on the Day of Atonement. The fun of learning about science and math doesn't have to stop with this podcast. The MIT Press has published two books from Quantum Magazine. In Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire, explore our quantum reality and the mysteries of time, black holes, deep learning, and the origin of life. In The Prime Number Conspiracy, meet the world's greatest mathematical minds and immerse yourself in their insights. You can find Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire and The Prime Number Conspiracy wherever you buy books, including Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or your local bookstore. You can also listen to them as audiobooks on Audible. From Quantum Magazine, we illuminate science because you want to know more. All right, can I talk about the one thing that's really on my mind? Yeah. Talk about what's on your mind. I love that. I had a feeling this was going to be good because when someone says, can I tell you what's really on my mind? You know that you're going to get something that's taboo, maybe, or dangerous, or maybe it's something, you know, sometimes people will say, can I tell you what's really on my mind? And you're about to get insulted. So I didn't know where this was going. Okay, what's on my mind that I'm really burning up about this year is the dude wall. Do you know what a dude wall is? I don't know what that is. A dude wall is every academic institution, every medical school, every college, every undergraduate campus, every graduate school, every institute has a dude wall. A dude wall is a display in a public area that has pictures of white men who are the Uh, former department chairs or prize winners or historic members of the department, often forgotten department sure. chairs. The department chair from 1920, and there, there's usually a lot of them. It's usually a lineup of between 10 and 50 of these pictures. And I've just recently been noticing that they're everywhere and that the people who walk by them are the very diverse undergraduate and graduate uh, population that inhabits the conference rooms and the seminar halls and the lobbies. And so I'm on a bit of a mission to try to get the word out that if you have a dude wall, 
you should ask yourself what purpose is it serving, what message is it sending, as you have, you know, undergraduate population, they're fifty percent female, and every institution does its best to bring in underrepresented minorities <clears throat> so that the diversity of the the mission of every educational edu edu uh, institution <clears throat> is to educate, and the students do not reflect the demographics of the dude wall. So, mm -hmm. um, mm. so this is just something that I think a lot of people have forgotten that they're up, or they think that they reflect a history of the department, or uh, that they're a lovely mm -hmm. thing. Um, I would never, mm. no matter how prominent I might ever become, I would never sit for a portrait to have my portrait painted for a dude wall or have a picture taken i just think it's a bizarre throwback and i think it does actually affect mm -hmm. the climate and we have to do everything we can to make the climate inclusive and welcoming to people so if you if every day you walk down the hall and you see all these old white dudes kind of says that it's the old white dudes who get the acclaim whose pictures on the wall and that we're all just little expendable worker bees so um, we're working on that at Rockefeller. We have a huge dude wall, and we're in the process of kind of redesigning it to reflect the fact that there are women and and minorities who also have made major contributions. So that's my mm -hmm. I'm burning up about the dude walls this year. So the one remedy is to make it less of a dude wall by by including some of the people who are working, the more diverse people working there today. But you could also just take down the whole thing, right? That'd be a different solution. I mean, every, every institution has to make its own decision, but every institution, everybody in every institution should go out in the hallway and ask, is there a dude wall? And the answer is definitely going to be yes. Yeah. And I mean, you could take it down, you could take it down, put it in storage. At Rockefeller, the dude wall is wonderful. It's all of our Nobel and Lasker Prize winners. However, there have been many unsung women and minority scientists right. who didn't happen to win a Nobel in Alaska. And so we are kind of reshuffling, redesigning it, and uh, recognizing the discoveries, the prominent women in science who are at Rockefeller. So I think that's an option. The new president of Brigham and Women's Hospital, there was the most massive dude wall known to, on earth was up there. All these incredibly enormous oil paintings, yeah. very dusty, very old. and. Yep. They covered the entire wall from the from the floor to the ceiling. You couldn't even squint to see the one on the top. And so the first president of Brigham and Women's just said, let's just take this thing down. Let's take it down. And I think what she ended up doing was redistributing them to, you know, I mean, I think like one dusty old portrait is fine. I think that there is a history to an institution. Like, show me one, but don't show me 50. Yeah. So I think her solution there was a really nice solution as a placeholder. Just paint the wall white and then maybe come up with some other way to reflect the culture of the institution. It's the medical students there, it's the graduate students, it's the discoveries, it's the staff scientists. Um, most of biology, and I would say in your discipline also, is a function of many people. It's not a lone genius. I, I can't resist mentioning what's been happening in my own department about this. So we have, it's something from the 60s, it's called, it used to be called, I think it was called something like Men of Mathematics. Men of Mathematics in an undergraduate teaching institution. Well, so yeah, let me describe what it is. So it's, it's, this, it's a poster that um, occupies a whole wall. It goes, I don't know, must be like maybe 20 feet long. It starts in the year 1000. It's a timeline and it has little sketches, pictures of, you know, Galileo and Weierstrass and Riemann and Gauss and all these great 
they're all basically dead white European men. I'm really interested in history of math, and I have this right outside my office, and I'm the one who resurrected it from the storage bin or wherever. It was in the basement. It was going <laughs> to be thrown away, and I put it up. And my colleagues, we have several female professors in the department, and they and some of our graduate students pointed out to me that they hate that poster. And that pisses them off every time they walk by it. And I totally hear them. And it didn't occur to me because of this problem that even people of goodwill can be idiots about stuff like this. And I think I was. And now there's the question of what to do. Should we, we could just simply take it down. I mean, I don't know what the right answer is. You can't, you can't change history. I'm sure it's a beautiful image. But I think you just have to keep in mind, like, what is the mission of your, what's the mission of your institution? Are you a museum? Or are you um, training the future um, bright minds in mathematics? If it's the latter, I don't think you should rub people's noses in the fact that history did not include them. Yeah. So. so buckle in. Buckle up. All right. Dude wall, here we come. <sighs> okay. <laughs> After talking to Leslie, I couldn't stop thinking about my dude wall or, well, my version of a dude wall. It's actually a poster. So on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, my producer, Ellen Horn, hopped into my Subaru with me and we planned to confront this dude wall head on. But still, actually, it felt a bit uncomfortable. Okay. <laughs> Are you excited? I'm excited. I'm a little nervous. Why are you nervous? I'm apprehensive. Are you afraid we're going to get arrested? I'm not afraid of getting in trouble. You're not? I'm afraid of having a confrontation about whether I'm doing the right thing. And I, and I don't know, but I think I am, um, because I know that the poster hurts people right now. And that doesn't seem worth it, even though it's educationally a valuable poster. It presents a very one-sided view of the history of math, and it does it in an absolutely gorgeous design. So what do you do when something is an artistic masterpiece of a different era, and its sensibility is not our sensibility today, and, and it's hurtful to some people today? Personally, I still think this poster is gorgeous. It's a marvel of design. You know that um, the couple, the Eames, they designed the Eames chair? Well, they're actually a married couple, Charles and Ray Eames, and they were the graphic designers of this same poster that was hanging outside my office. But, but little by little, some of my colleagues um, and grad students told me that it bugs them. One time, uh, a student that I was working with named Kelsey, who was a graduate student that was a teaching assistant for a course I was doing. A woman. A woman. Yes, she's a woman, and she's now a professor. Um, but at the time, she was a graduate student, and we were teaching a course together that was very much geared toward helping encourage students who hated math or who didn't see the point of math, who thought it was boring or oppressive in some way, who, you know, who had math anxiety. This course was a very diverse class in every way you could think of, gender, race. There were a lot of seniors who had to figure out a way to take math. You know, they thought they were done. They ended up in this course. So this is a glorious course to teach. I mean, a lot of my colleagues don't want to teach it, but I love teaching it because it's all upside. 
The students already hate the subject. You can't ruin them. <laughs> right? And, and the thing is that they all have a very distorted picture of what math is because of their education up till this point. They think of it as all these arbitrary rules and procedures and you have to follow this or that algorithm and it doesn't make any sense to them. And so when I show them in this course at Kelsey too, I mean, we really taught it together. We would show them just how beautiful and artistic and creative and imaginative this is and how it's an expression of the human spirit, just like everything else that they care about. Yeah. Meanwhile, you know, so Kelsey and I are, are this force for good, we like to think, except then I've got this poster hanging outside my office. And every time she comes to my office, she's confronted with the fact that nobody on the poster looks like her. And there's this message that's unspoken, but it's very plain that this is what mathematicians look like. And that's just what they've looked like for a thousand years. And they don't look like you because they're men. And so, you know, it's hurtful to her. And and especially now that we're in the 21st century, she doesn't feel like this is the right message to be sending anymore. And I have to say I agree with her. So we've just pulled up to my department and um, it's looking pretty quiet, although most of the parking spaces are taken. But I think we can pull in here because it's after hours. And so we're just gonna park right here and we'll worry about getting a ticket later. All right, so we're here and uh, this is it. This is the moment. It's time for this dude wall to come down. Time for some action. Here it is, Cornell Math Department. Goodbye, dude wall. All right, show me to your dude wall. All right, let's walk. And so as you can see, there's not much action here in the math department after hours. There, are you seeing it? Check it out. Here it is. 12 feet of pure manhood. <laughs> Gray and black oh, wow. from the year 1000 to the year 1950. Of course, it turns out taking it down is a breeze. That's pretty easy. That's nice. Oh. All right. Well, um, just on the other side of this wall, from where the monument to the men of mathematics had hung, as it happens, that night there was a math class in action. So we pop our heads in to see what they thought of our act of um, righteous vandalism. There are about like something like 30 people in the room. Maybe two are white men like me. So we asked this room what they thought about the poster. Have an opinion about it? Just have an opinion. <laughs> Go ahead. You know, we're we're Just doing the it. Controversy with the... There's a little bit of a controversy I, I about it. Come tell us about it. <laughs> Unless you don't have to give your name. What do you think? Okay. But that it says men of mathematics. Right. Yeah. And that's why we're taking it down. Yeah. I mean, I would love I would love to see. Uh, a poster with people of mathematics. Yeah. I think some of the most badass mathematicians are people who are not on the poster. You know, um, Ramajan and Emmy Noether, like, they're... You know, so Emmy Noether, she was the only woman on the whole poster. Oh, she was? She's yeah. on the poster. She's on the poster. So we bring this instructor, she's a grad student, Elise McMahon, out into the hall to look at Emmy Noether, the only female mathematician on the poster. And Emmy Noter is described in the poster as fat, rough, and loud. Um, yeah. Does it say much about her math? 
Emmy Noder's math was fantastic. It does say Emmy's early work on invariance gave no hint that she would become one of the creators of abstract axiomatic algebra. She developed the axiomatic theory of ideals, introducing the ascending chain condition, gave a unified theory of non-commutative algebras. Uh, sorry, I'm getting worked up. She was such a great mathematician. <laughs> Apparently, I heard that she was the one who realized that the fundamental group was, in fact, a group. Really? Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, the algebra that you learned today yep. in algebra classes is from her. Yep. She had the modern vision. Yep. Yeah. What class are you teaching in there? Uh, it's the theoretical calculus and linear algebra. Cool. So it's for all the kids who are, like, gung-ho about math, which is fun. <laughs> Nice. Yeah. Steve's saying he teaches the other end of that. Spectrum. Yes, I've taught the class for the kids that have, you know, don't want to take math. Mm. We call math explorations, and it helps turn a lot of them around. They start to see why we love it. Yeah. You know, that's the goal, is to yeah. really help them see what's, what's beautiful and fun about it. Yeah. But um, one of the things we do in that class is have them write uh, a final project about a 20th century math. You've seen our we posters. Yeah, we yeah. tried to populate the department with these posters of 20th century and 21st century mathematicians. And a lot of them are people of color, women, all kinds of, and they're, you know, they're not on this poster, but they sure deserve to be. Yeah. Well, thank you for letting us hijack you. We're, yeah. we're making a podcast for Quantum Magazine. Uh, I, I have to say, you know, this has been quite a learning experience. I do agree with what Leslie Vossel taught me. The walls of educational institutions should look like the people inside them now in the present, not just in the past. They should look like the people here now and into the future. They should really look like the future. Next time on The Joy of X, we'll travel through space-time with an artist turned physicist, Robert Digraph. The Joy of X is a podcast project of Quantum Magazine. We're produced by Story Mechanics. Our producers are Dana Bialik and Camille Peterson. Our music is composed by Yuri Weber and Charles Michelet. Ellen Horn is our executive producer. From Quantum Magazine, our editorial advisors are Thomas Lynn and John Rennie. Our sound engineers are Charles Michelet. And at the Cornell University Broadcast Studio, Glenn Palmer and Bertrand Odom Reed, though I know him as Bert. I'm Steve Strogatz. Thanks for listening. <laughs>